A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. This week, I am speaking with Stephen Reynolds, who is the industry principal for the chemical segment at Aviva. He's an operations guy who has spent the first part of his 25-year career in manufacturing sites for companies including Roman Haas, Sunoco Chemical, and Suncoke Energy before moving to the corporate side of the house. Today at Aviva, he combines his operations insights with digitization to help companies achieve and improve operational excellence. Steve's, Stephen is based in Chicago and is an alumnus of two of my favorite universities, Texas A&M and Loyola University, Chicago. Stephen, welcome to The Chemical Show. Victoria, thank you for having me and thank you for that very excellent introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm about to keep some of that. Yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll send it back over to you. What's your origin story? What got you interested in chemicals and what really got you into operational excellence? All right. Well, those are two separate things really. And, and, you know, from a, uh, I'm using some school buzzwords that I hear from my, my daughter, you know, the STEM professionals, uh, typically can trace their roots back to a teacher or a, a school experience. And so I, I think I can, uh, do that. Uh, so I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, which may not show up on many maps that people recognize, but um, we had excellent access to just a, a tremendous education. And I can say that I just finished a, a high school reunion and we we got together and talked about, you know, the experience that we had. And, and, and I can trigger, you know, the beginning or point to the beginning of my chemical engineering adventure down to my high school chemistry teacher. Um, you know, Mr. Aiken, if he's listening, thank you. But, uh, you know, Mr. Aiken was one of those teachers that got you involved early and often and, and really just honed your skills every day. And I ended up taking two years of chemistry in high school so that by the time I got to college, it was a, a real no brainer. And I can remember, you know, uh, Mr. Aiken saying, Hey, you know, chemistry is great. You're great at it. You should try engineering and because you can go far on that. And, you know, 25 years and counting, here I am. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So and, and, and from an operational excellence standpoint, kind of very similar, but it, it falls more to the, the leadership that I've been exposed to and the time I've had around them. Um, you know, my, my first plant manager uh, we were in a small polymers plant in Southeast Texas, and you know we we loved firefighting. That firefighting mode, the the you know that hero aspect of always solving the problem today. And you know he liked to really focus on the difference between firefighting and excellence, and and how do you go from one to the other, and and you know the 
other people have called you know firefighting that catch and release improvement plan where you you find an idea and it's gone the next day because you're moving on to the next fire and and so we really started to preach you know solving those problems uh setting establishing the operation systems to really facilitate moving from firefighting to excellence so that you didn't repeat the same fires every day it's fine to firefight let's just fight different fires and you know i ended up working for the the man three different times so first as a unit engineer uh i got involved in his uh operational excellence operating discipline program at, a, at another company uh, and then followed him finally uh, to Sun Coke and we uh, where I did continuous improvement. Um, so, you know, obviously he made an impression and, and I've tried to carry through. That's interesting. I know. In fact, it was during my manufacturing days that I also got exposed to operational excellence the first time. We didn't call it that. I actually was I was. Um, an operations manager um, in okay. charge of a of a polyethylene unit, and I was leading a reliability team. So our plant manager had implemented a bunch of reliability teams. But again, it's all about getting to the root cause, about not repeating the same issues, about achieving a higher level of performance and excellence mm -hmm. in performance. So um, that's really interesting. Tell us a little bit about Aviva. All right. So I'd write this down so I didn't get it wrong but uh <laughs> you know today aviva is a wholly owned subsidiary of schneider electric um and so that gives us uh you know kind of the the width and breadth behind us to to really do great things uh aviva has a a broad portfolio almost uh an incredibly comprehensive portfolio that can help our customers manage their information and data from the the beginning of engineering and design uh, through on to you know the run and maintain of operations, the training of our personnel, and then finally to optimization and sustainability. Uh, so you know it it runs the the spectrum of those uh, tool sets and customer needs. Um, so it's I think we you know we're a global company, so we operate on all continents, with maybe the exception of Antarctica, obviously, but. Uh, uh, so we we support and uh, implement and and guide our customers hopefully to success yeah that's really cool that's cool and i am familiar with a few of um aviva's products but maybe we'll talk about some of that later about where that comes in because i think there's a lot of buzz when we start talking about digital and digital operational excellence which is one of the things we're going to be talking about today that we can maybe demystify or talk about a little bit more all right awesome yeah and and then, you know, Aviva has grown uh, through not only, you know, organic engineering and design of their products, but through acquisition as well. Um, I joined Aviva from OSIsoft, uh, which is the makers of the Pi system, uh, which has been around for over 40 years now. And I've been a customer of which for at least 20 of those. Um, and, and so, you know, it's it's that blending of technologies, building on the foundation of data, and then adding those other applications that Aviva can provide uh, to really build that comprehensive suite of tools, you know, to help our customers. It's, yeah, that's interesting. Really and I had not, yeah. I had not appreciated that um, how old some of the Aviva technology is, as you say. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. Yes, ma'am. Interesting. So you started your career in chemical manufacturing, and now today you help manufacturing companies. 
How has the industry's approach to operations and operational excellence changed over time? Well, I would say we've definitely gotten leaner. Um, even from my early experience, you know, I hired into an engineering staff of maybe a, a dozen professionals and uh, through various initiatives and departures whittled that down to one, <laughs> wow. was, which is very difficult to, to comprehend as a young engineer. Um, not everybody is that extreme, but I think that's, that's a, a growing refrain uh, within the industry. We can't staff the way we once did. And, and so remote, uh, you know, resources may be remote. Um, they may be external and, and how do we uh, manage the flow of information across those boundaries to get the best answers to our people. And I think, you know, that, that flow of information is what's, what's changing quite a bit. Um, you know, it's no longer a, you know, kind of dribbled out on a need to know basis. I think leadership is, is beginning to open some of those gates and sharing, uh, you know, real information and insight uh, with our teams. Um, and that's really, you know, they're uh, hopefully to drive uh, decision-making to that point of action so that we give people the the information they need to make the right decision when they need to make it. And they don't have to always run it up the, the leadership chain to, to get approval, permission. They're empowered to act. And, and I think you know, as we, we see the role of technology there, there's, you know, an initiative called the Connected Worker. And, and that's really, uh, you know, we, we're going to talk operational excellence and digital transformation. And it really comes to a point at that Connected Worker piece because we've, we've managed our people process and, and technology to a point where, you know, they're at the, the tip of the activity uh, driving the business. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about connected worker because I do hear that term periodically. Um, when when that term is used, when we talk about connected worker, is that about the operator at the site or who does it really refer to? And then what? A, how does it manifest for them to be connected? Um, I, I think certainly it does uh, drop to the or. Uh, extend all the way to the shop floor. So the operators in the field, um, you know, the the growth of augmented reality tools and virtual reality tools uh, can give them that overlay of information. Um, of course, that's the the future state or the the leading edge technology right now. But even so, uh, the handheld devices have access to information so that you know they can. Um, go out to a piece of equipment, get the work history on that, get the current state of operations from not only the field gauges that they see, but from the sensors that are coming into our control systems. Um, you know, if there's other analytics involved, we can arm them with the tools they need when they're out in the field. So, um, you know, access to procedures, access to troubleshooting guides, they don't have to call in, hey, what do I do next? Or, you know, it's just right there at their fingertips. And, and similarly, you know, with our control operators and even our engineers, um, you know, COVID uh, inspired us or, or pushed us into this remote technology age where uh, we can access data from just about anywhere. I mean, I can remember as a young engineer have it being the, the on-call uh, engineer, you know, over the weekend or the week or the holiday and having to get this bag full of this you know, archaic laptop that 
you know, had to dial into the network to get access to the data, right? And and now all that's available from our phone, you know, provided we can set up the, the cybersecurity. So, you know, the, your expertise can be remote. Uh, we have several instances where our customers are building these remote centers to help optimize um, where, so they're connected workers, you know, the plant may be in Houston, their expertise might be in Ohio. And, and how do we uh, bridge the gap of the information that needs to be sent? So. Yeah, that's interesting because I think it used to be um, when people started talking about and started actually building, let's just say, central control rooms or having, you know, if you will, control rooms remote from the site, which it sounded like implausible. It sounded yes. unsafe. It sounded risky, risky from mm -hmm. an operations perspective, from a safety perspective, from a responsiveness perspective. And yet, as you say, um, technology has really accelerated and made that possible. And mm -hmm. I guess this, the experience that we've all had uh, of working remotely as a regular piece of our business um, has changed our mindsets as well. Yeah, and, and that will suit our upcoming generation of, uh, you know, chemical workers, whether they're operators or engineers or, or part of the business team, you know, my, my daughter's 12 and, you know, she's on her phone 24 seven and that's just how they interact with people and information. So, uh, you know, that won't even phase them <laughs> when they get yeah. into industry. <laughs> You're right. You're right. So they want, you know, I occasionally, in fact, even this morning, I printed out something so I could do some edits and do some thinking and, and, uh, you know, my kids don't do that. They, yep. they do their thinking on their devices or on electronically, and they have just a different comfort level. Yes, ma'am. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, we've, we've, started talking about the whole digital and digital transformation. And, and really there's been an element of digital and manufacturing for years. So, I mean, I think back to even my time in manufacturing, which was a long time ago, as it turns out, you know, we had DCS systems. We talked about statistical process control as a way of managing data. So this has been around for a long time. What's different today? We've talked a little bit about the, the connected worker, but is it beyond that? What's really different and how has it evolved? Well, um, you know, I have similar experience. My That first plant I worked at, I came in just as they were going through a DCS conversion, going from their their old pneumatic uh, wall of pins to a DCS. And, you know, I had operators swear up and down that they could look at that wall and know exactly how the plant was running. You know, it'd been in existence for probably 30 years at that point. Oh my God. And, I, and I so remember the, seeing walls like that and having yep. no idea how they were controlling anything. So, yeah. you know, and, and so that was the, the, my first exposure to that transformation. And within two years at that plant, we, you know, a controls engineer came and was beginning to develop that advanced process control and operators were embracing it. So the pace of change is, is very fast, even with, you know, senior people, they, they realize the facility of it and, and off we go. Um, and I think really that's what's changed in, in the, the digital age that we're in is, is that rate of change uh, in the access of technology. Um, you know, as the saying goes back in my day, um, you know, spreadsheets and the use of Excel was, was the height of innovation 
um, in those early years, right? We had data historians that could connect the DCS to our spreadsheet. We could get our data, manipulate it, do all the analytics and, and go. And, and that was considered pretty robust at the time. You know, now now our, our real-time data systems take those analytics, put them into the system, manage them, um, and then uh, we begin connecting the dots. And, and we'll talk about you know digital twins and things, but we're we're creating that digital representation of of our our assets, our plant, our business, so that information begins to connect and relate to each other, and we can scale it out and, and manage the information so that people. Uh, can step in and, and work and understand what's going on and have access to key decision points. And, you know, so the technology, um, you might hear a phrase edge to cloud. Um, you know, the for a long time, you know, we, we resisted adding more sensors because we didn't have enough control points in the, in the, the system, right? Well, if it's not needed for control, we can strap on these these sensors now and, and farm the data up to the cloud or remote access into, for example, the Pi system or other historians. Um, so the data is there and it's fairly inexpensive. And so you're seeing more and more access to information that we've not always had. Um, this improves field data um, gauges now. You know, we have the barcode systems where we just, we could ping something and up comes the data into our handheld, and that can go into our, our data systems. Uh, so I think the access to data is crucial. Um, the rapid advancement in our ways of analyzing things is what's really impressive. Um, you know, the, the pattern recognition, the AI, the predictive analytics, um, you know, we, we sell those today. I've never used them personally. <laughs> I've <laughs> I've walked through demos. Yeah. Um, I've I've interacted with the software, but I've never had to do it. We've always had to go, like I said, from the historian to the spreadsheet to try to run those predictive algorithms ourselves. And now those tools do it in real time, and we can see where we're headed weeks, days, months, hopefully uh, before we get there. And I think that's that's really crucial. Um, and like I said in the beginning, I'm I'm a, a longtime customer of the Pi system, and for me, and, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, uh, as a young engineer, all these different systems were relatively interchangeable. Um, you know, data historians were just a way to get data, and I think what's really um, imbued these systems with uh, power is that digital twin. And I think for me, that's been the real aha over the last. Well, 10 years or so of being able to contextualize the information and how it relates. Um, you know, this helps us build, you know, uh, standard templates and analytics so that it's no longer, you know, plant A's version of the truth compared to plant B's. We have that common language. We're starting to build that single source of truth that we always speak of so that we can really compare apples to apples. And if there's an orange in there, we know it. And this is how we, we make that comparison instead of just trying to feel our way through it. Okay. So let's talk digital twins. Um, what is it really? Uh, it sounds a little scary uh, and, and, and big and 
I think about assets and how big and bulky they are. And imagine doing this on a digital basis as a digital twin. It's it's kind of mind boggling. But but what is it and what value does it offer to the users? So yeah, that, that question comes up quite a bit and and everybody has a different definition of a digital twin. All right. um, Good to know. <laughs> and, well, in each organization or 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 um, you know business unit or uh, you know business group will have one. You know, if you you go into systems, uh, maintenance systems have their functional locations broken down by asset down to the bill of materials, and and that's that's a a digital twin. Um, our our real time systems will have that. We can use that same structure. We can organize it differently based on what we need um, by asset, by plant, by region, by business, however we want to do it. Um, you know, financially, you get into the general ledger. There's different accounts. That's a financial digital twin. Um, HR has their systems. Uh, you know, safety and, and compliance have their ways of reporting and, and managing information. So digital twin for me is really just a, is that representation of how the data relates together and and how do we organize it from these data sources into a meaningful useful way uh, within our system and and so it's it's really um, you know we have you know standard practices or better practices out there but you know each customer has their way of organizing their information and connecting the dots through their system. And and so we we just help them get there faster, hopefully. Yeah, it's interesting. So I envision, so, so I'll just tell you where my brain goes when I think about a digital twin. I think of it in some ways as, you know, if you're, again, if you're looking at the control system and on the control board, you can see all the, you can see the, um, the different pieces of equipment and the flows and the ins and outs and the pressures and temperatures and every you know all the data that you're you're doing that is it is it that or is it much more about decision scenarios um well it starts with that um you know for example within our our, our pi system that's how we might define uh, you might define a pump and these are all the the digital points that define this pump we will connect it to our asset information systems to bring in the the contextual, you know, the manufacturer data, the control limits, those types of information. So, you know, we'll we'll have what we call a pump, and a number of pumps, compressors, reactors, vessels will combine to form an operating unit, and then the operating unit will combine to form a plant and the plant's enterprise and, and beyond. Um, so that's that's the the basic of the data and then how we use it is, is really the power of the digital twin so you you mentioned decision making i think the digital twin em, empowers or enables you know rapid um, dissemination of event of information so you're no longer having to look at everything you know i can remember those early dcs's where you had to flip every darn screen and and finally we we developed that you know, alarm panel or the exception panel. And then, so we do the same with the digital twin. We're, we're trying to manage by exception so that as this data combines, we, we can see that total picture of whether it's performance around a unit, a business or an asset. We have the information that says, mm, there's an anomaly here, we need to go act. And, 
And so I, I think that's really the power of the twin is bringing all this to bear for better decisions back to the connected worker. So we do all this hunting and pecking digitally so that they don't have to. I mean, think about in your, your engineering days, if you had a problem with a pump, you had to go to the maintenance shed, find the file room, dig through a, a, a dusty old filing cabinet that may or may not open without some assistance. Water may have gotten in there, rats, dirt. You know, you're not guaranteed to find the, the right information. Um, digitally, now we connect the dots so that, you know, that digital twin carries forward from your real-time operations all the way back to your engineering documentation if, if so not, uh, needed. Yeah, awesome. So I, I kind of got a two-part question. I'm debating which direction to go with it first. So, so I'm going to start with this one. It It feels like a really big undertaking, both from a financial perspective, a people perspective, um, resources, time, et cetera. Which then makes me say, you know, maybe start with this question first. How do people justify this? How are companies justifying the investment of time, resources, individuals, et cetera, um, as they go through this digital transformation? Well, you hit on the key word, investment. Um, you know, very often these projects are, are rolled into a cost center. They're a they're an operating cost or, or, or some new gadget that we're trying out. So they don't see that as an investment towards the future. And that's, that's really what digital transformation is. It's an investment. It's an extension of that operational excellence into that next thing. Um, we've, we've taken people process as far as we're going to go technology in our processes, maybe as far as we're going to go now, this added information technology can really push us uh, over to the next phase. And so investment, um, you know, like you say, it's a, it's a resource problem. Um, so the, the bigger companies, of course, have, have people and, and assets to, to really throw at some of these initiatives and some of the smaller plants don't. Um, and so it really is, uh, it's change management and, and identifying that need for change. Um, we don't want to be a solution looking for a problem. And, and so, you know, part of our, our trusted advisor goal is to help our customers understand what they're really trying to do, what they need to achieve, and then coming up with the capabilities that they may need. Um, and it, it you know, it's not one size fits all. Not everyone's going to race ahead to that, you know, virtual plant in the sky. Um, many of our plants or our customers just need access to the information, visibility into the process, and they're able to identify 80% of their problems. So I think um, one is finding that need for, for transformation. Uh, COVID's a great example. We we went remote, right? And so people were not always coming in or accessible to the plant to to, to help. How do we how do we solve that? And, you know, people have been asking us about visualization, remote access, and and just getting that visibility into the the data. So that was a, a big change or big need for change. 
Um, you know, for years, it's always been cost driven. I really need access and to optimize our process. So you mentioned SPC that was driven at, you know, minimizing waste and minimizing transitions, optimizing yields. How do we get the biggest bang for our buck within our process? Um, asset reliability has always been a, a challenge. So um, in a lot of these petrochemical facilities, there's, uh, you know, big iron out there or very valuable assets, not iron, probably some, you know, specialty monomer or materials and things like that, that are very expensive to fix, very expensive to repair, require downtime and all that. You know, enough of those failures pop up. You're going to install vibration monitoring. You're going to install predictive analytics to say, I need to get ahead of these and, and, and drive this improvement so that I can stop firefighting and move on to excellence. And, and so that's, that's where these tools really come in. Yeah, um, that's helpful. And in fact, cause you know, cause part of the, the part two, my question was really, it seems like this is um, a lot of this digital transformation is really being enacted by the biggest companies with the biggest investment base, the biggest, the deepest pockets, if you will. And that there's a perception. And when I talk to companies that are mid-sized companies and smaller companies that it's not for them, that this digital transformation isn't for them, that maybe the value's not there. They just, the economics don't work, right? Again, you know, when you're, when you're working off a smaller investment pool or operating fund, um, it doesn't, feel like it fits. How do you respond to that? What do you see happening? Well, I mean, the, the, the you're right. Uh, the chemicals industry especially is, is slow to change. And so we, we see a broad spectrum of, of technology adopters. Um, you know, the leaders out there, um, you know, I, uh, you know, you look at Dow Chemical, um, they're always uh, Dow, Covestro, BASF, a lot of these big, big name top 25 chemical co companies are out there innovating. You know, Dow, you know, their goal was to eliminate confined space entry uh, with the use of industry 4.0 technologies, whether it's, you know, drones and virtual inspections, uh, advanced analytics, those type of things. Um, but even they will concede. Um, you know, that they have pockets of excellence. So, you know, it's, it's, they, they're testing these technologies, improving them out where they can. And when there's, uh, you know, I guess, capability to achieve some of these, um, but they'll concede that that solution is not universal yet. Right. They, they haven't implemented it at the, uh, the deepest, darkest plant in uh, middle of nowhere, West Texas, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, when we talk to these smaller customers, that's what we, we we tell them. Hey, yes, there are leaders out there doing these great things, but they haven't licked everything, and 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 their solutions may not be your solutions. And and so there's, you know, we we like to preach the the start simple but simply start mantra, and and I didn't coin that phrase. That came from from one of our customers. But, That's a great uh, phrase. I'm I'm making note. Yeah, but you know, it, it comes to understanding that need that you have, and and back to that managing change. What what do you need to do, and what are you prepared and ready to do? Um, so a lot of these technologies require information and data, and, and some of these plants. Um, you know, we talked to ag 
the ag chemical facilities, the fertilizer plants and things like that, um, they have a low uh, digital footprint um, because, you know, they, they make uh, low margin products that, um, that don't, you know, warrant that investment. And they've been doing it for many years well. And so they, they just haven't felt the need to, to do some of these things. And, but, you know, they're coming up with, with new reasons to do this. And that's, like I said, where the, the edge technology allows that, that bolt on sensors. Um, but it, it really is for the, the smaller companies and, and the ones that are just starting their journey is find that investment need, start small, think big, but start small, um, fail small is another great tagline that I've heard. Um, so you can you can explore the technology, um, invest in quick wins, you know, um, demonstrate it, get that value uh, that helps sell it not only to the people that have to embrace the change, but also to the leadership that has to write the checks for it. And and so they they see that sunk cost initially, we prove out some value, and then we have money to proceed proceed to the next phase. And so it becomes just that investment go do strategy of you know, we'll, we'll make and go. And so everyone's journey is different. Not everyone has that, that big oil money to, to go all in all at once. And so there are companies that will take years, if not, you know, a decade to say, okay, we've established our data foundation. We've understood how it relates to each other. We've solved these problems and we're doing really well, but we think we can get this much more. You know, we have this pump or, or asset that's not performing the way it should. Let's invest now in these predictive technologies or the the AI uh, tools to bring it all together. And, and by the way, our our remote system or our, we don't have the the support system we once did. Our resources all sit offsite at some corporate location. How do we share that data? And and that so that's kind of how the system just grows organically as the needs change and as as the um, desire really changes. Yeah, makes sense. And I, and I like what you said about, you know, establishing the data foundation, right? If you, you need to start somewhere. Um, and this is something I talk to companies about, I, you know, and a number of facets of, of the transformations that the industry is going through, right? Because we've got a number of transformations taking place at the same time, digitization, sustainability, et cetera. And it's like, start somewhere. You, you figure out what your foundation is, establish your foundation and your baseline, and then you keep moving. So I'm going to use that to segue into ESG and sustainability, right? So ESG and sustainability, key themes we talk about a lot on the chemical show. It is everywhere you look at when you turn on the news or talk to people. What does this mean to Aviva and its customers? Well, you know, I, I've, I've talked at this with at length with my boss and, and, you know, he's, he's a tad older than me and been doing this a little longer. But uh, you know, we, we came to the conclusion that you know these tools have always supported sustainability. You know, we just called them something different. So whether it's you know reliable supply, asset reliability, waste reduction, energy management, compliance, um, we just never had that umbrella term before. You know, sustainability, and and sustainability, of course, encompasses more than just those basics. Those are um, as my wife might say, table stakes. Um, but you know, we have the, these net zero initiatives out there for carbon, re- you know, carbon reduction. Um, circularity um, is a, a very new 
burgeoning technology where you know we're 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 taking these products recycling them back into our uh, value chain right so and it's no longer just mechanical recycling it's chemical recycling bringing it back to the raw materials so that we can make something new again and and so that i think is where the forefront of the technology is really changing to adapt you know we still do all the basics of uh, monitoring and and maintaining optimization and performance so your energy management translates to emissions uh, safer operation we don't have those aha releases that we we may have and had in the past um our equipment's lasting longer we're taking care of it better so that we don't always have to go and junk that pump we can it lasts longer we rebuild it uh the wear and tear is not as as bad as it once was so we're we're operating in a, a more sustainable manner uh companies are changing their their assets out to uh, be more environmentally friendly in that regard, whether it's carbon capture or scrubbers or things like that. How do we monitor and optimize those systems? Um, a lot of talk has been given to the scope one, scope two um, emissions, and that's really our bread and butter of, of optimization as engineers and 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 the the data systems we have today. Um, I think what you're going to start seeing now is that community of data, um, uh, and we'll jokingly call it the carbon chain <laughs> but the scope three that um you know is is everything else you know our suppliers our customers how car you know that carbon emission is is managed across our value chain and being able to share that data and access it across those different legal entities in a safe and you know intellectual uh, proprietary way is really going to be that next horizon for for cloud data and how we manage it will access through the the AI and, and being able to capture those components and really prove that hey we're not just talking about it we're actually doing it yeah yeah that's really interesting I think and I think um, your point about the data the community of data becomes really critical for the industry um, particularly as we look at scope three, because scope three is the biggest impact that many companies and value chains have. Um, so it will be uh, good to see how this evolves and transforms. You know, and we've we've done it, you know, for years from that optimization standpoint. You're seeing these solutions begin to get baked in. Uh, you know, some from an engineering side, looking at our simulations, these emissions now are part of the model, right? So the greenhouse gas calculations, you design it. You know, these models are going to take a stab at what your footprint is. Uh, planning tools where we, you know, look at um, how we're going to manage our raw materials now include not only raw materials, but some of these greenhouse gas calculations and what power sources you're going to use. So your, your carbon footprint and the pricing model can change whether you're using, you know, the coal-fired, uh, coal generation, electricity, wind, other renewables so that you know all that comes to play is how you run your business and and i think that's that baked in uh awareness to sustainability is is really what's you know being developed now 
Right. And the, and the digital assets help drive that transparency and in, in yeah. information and decision-making. And, and so that back to the digital twin, connecting the dots uh, from that simulation and model to your real-time performance, to your planning and, and optimization expectations, uh, you know, allows that seamless communication of information. And then because it's, you know, a digital representation, hopefully we scale out to, to more and more facilities and, and across that business community. Yeah, awesome. That's very cool. So Stephen, this has been very good um, and interesting conversation here. What's next for you and for Aviva as we play out the rest of 23 and into 2024? What should we be looking for? Well, um, you know, for me, uh, I enjoy the work. Uh, I enjoy the job. Uh, I'll continue to be an evangelist for for the operational excellence and digital transformation. Um, as I tell my customers, uh, I no longer have a plant of my own. Please allow me to help with yours. Um, so I'll keep on keeping on. Uh, for Aviva, I think you'll continue to see development uh, across our portfolio. Um, we're, we're coming together as a one Aviva uh, now, trying to de-silo some of our, our uh, toolkits and, and portfolio items. Uh, so I think you'll see tighter integration uh, across not only our suite of tools, but into that value chain. Um, you know, the next frontier, of course, is cloud and AI. Um, so you'll continue to see developments uh, growing there, um, not only through our our foundation, but through our, our technical partner sphere. Um, and then, you know, the next thing uh, I would invite everyone, if you're interested in Aviva portfolio and, and the tools that we can offer, uh, Aviva World's coming up in, in San Francisco in October. So welcome to join us there and, and come see what what new releases uh, are on the horizon and, and where we're headed. Yeah, awesome. Although I got to say, Stephen, it's going to be a tough decision because the Chemical Summit overlaps with the Viva world, as we know. So maybe they can, people can tag team, go from one to the next. So yep. anyway, well, good. That's right. Well, thank you for this. I, um, I really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciate you joining us today. Victoria, thank you for your time and thank you for the opportunity to speak. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening. Keep listening, following and sharing, and we will talk to you again soon. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.